San, thank you so much. Your sharing was so beautiful and we're so blessed by Ping and Amy and Macy just to have you in our community. I wanted to start out this morning by telling two stories. I um, was with Tom and another couple about a week ago, and we started talking about things God was doing in our lives. I ended up sharing these stories, and even as I was sharing the stories, they felt sort of important to me. And then they came up again later in a prayer time when I was with Jesus later in the week. Um, so the first story was about my dad. It was when he was in his 80s. It was shortly before um, he died. My dad was suffering um, with congestive heart failure for some time um, at that point. Um, but by now, he was declining pretty um, quickly, and he hadn't eaten in a number of days. Um, he was no longer cognizant of um, family when we'd come to visit. Um, and he was sort of in that liminal space um, between life and death. Um, and we knew that the end was near. And when I got there, my dad was just laying on his bed and kind of staring upward at the ceiling with kind of a, a vacant look. And you know, when you um, have moments like that, it's a little bit emotional. I um, am studying my dad's face, wanting to remember him. Um, I know um, that this could be the last time that I see him, and, and um, as I'm getting ready to leave, and I had just been like saying whatever you say in those moments, like, Dad, I love you so much. I'm so grateful that you've been my father. You've been wonderful, so wonderful to my children, and he's just staring up. Um, but as I'm getting ready to leave, um, suddenly my dad, who has not uttered a word, taken any food, done anything um, in a while, gets very animated as he's looking up at the ceiling, and he says, the angels are coming. The angels are coming. Now, this was my sweet dad, who, as far as I know, had no real faith, and definitely no theology of angels. And there he was, announcing from some place that um, apparently didn't require a terribly well-functioning brain that he was being escorted um, into eternity by a heavenly host. Well, that moment was an incredible gift to me. Um, I got to witness something beautiful and deeply comforting my dad, who is now filled, suddenly filled with this rapturous joy, being welcomed by angels. Well, the second story is uh, somewhat similar. It happened, though, when I was a much younger woman in my 20s. I had just come to faith um, a few months earlier, and I wanted everyone in my Jewish family to know Jesus um, because, in part, I didn't want them to go to hell. Um, and that was a part of the theology in the church that I had just come to. I wasn't exactly sure what hell was, but it sounded kind of bad. Um, and I wanted my family to know about God because I had had a life 
life-changing encounter with God, and, and I wanted them to know that and have an opportunity for that. The problem was I had a grandmother who had advanced Alzheimer and was experiencing advanced um, dementia. And so she hadn't communicated with any of us, really, probably by then in over a year. Um, she had round-the-clock caretakers at that time. Um, she had no longer had any capacity to understand me, but still I felt like I had this invitation from God um, to talk to her about God. And so I went to her home, and um, I'm led in by her caretaker, and I'm directed to her bedroom, and my grandmother, similar to my dad is um, just laying in the bed, looking up, making sort of gurgling um, sounds. Um, but I believe that God has invited me to tell her about Jesus, and I loved her, and I cared about her. Um, and I'm doing what I think in those days was obedient to what God was inviting me to do, and that mattered and still matters to me a lot. So I sat on the bed next to her, and I began to talk to her about God. Now, I'm not exactly sure what I said because it was about 40 years ago now, but I'm imagine, I imagine that I told her my story about how I encountered God in this crazy, miraculous way and how my life changed, and I wanted all that goodness um, that I had encountered, all the goodness of God for her. And as I'm uh, saying all this, I have two things going on simultaneously. Like, I feel good because I'm doing the thing that I think I'm supposed to be doing, and that really matters to me, but I'm also feeling silly because I'm clearly saying these words to someone who is not registering anything that I'm saying, and I'm sort of asking myself, what am I even doing? But at some point, I finish sharing my little spill about God, um, and my grandma suddenly bolts upright like she's doing a power sit-up or something, and she looks at me with sort of eyes that communicate, don't you ever forget this. And she says in this really sweet way, honey, don't worry, I know God. And as far as I know, those were the last words that she ever said. Well, this morning, I'm asking the question, why do we have moments like these? I chose these stories in particular because no matter what, we can't explain them away. Like, I can't give some kind of rational explanation for them. If I pray for someone who says, Adi, I have a headache, would you pray for him? And I say, yes, of course, I'll pray for your headache. And then a little while, they say, oh my gosh, thank you for praying because my headache went away. I might say, well, praise God. I'm so happy your head headache went away, but headaches tend to go away. So I don't really know the role that God played in that. And if I pray for somebody to get a job and they go, oh, 80, guess what? I got the job. I'm thinking, oh. I'm so glad, I'm so grateful, but people tend to get jobs. So I don't really know the role that my prayer had in their getting the job. But in my wildest dreams, no matter 
how hard I tried, no matter what I, uh, kind of magic I tried to conjure, I could not make my dad see angels, right? I could not make my grandmother, who's suffering from advanced dementia, reassure me about her spiritual status. These are the moments that you and I cannot explain, moments that defy our reason, moments that we know we can't make happen. And I'm asking the question, what happens in these moments? And what does it tell us about God? And what is our invitation all this? And the scripture that we're looking at comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. As it says this in verse 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I'm sending you out like lambs among, lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse, bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. And when you enter the house, first say peace to this house. So say shalom. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating, drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat. Whatever's offered to you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So we don't know what uh, that refers to, but it seems like Jesus is saying, wherever you go, bring relief to those who are suffering, to the physically ill, the mentally ill, those who are suffering spiritually. And I'm assuming that this is what Jesus is telling them because this is what they have seen Jesus do over and over again. They've seen Jesus heal someone who's had the flu. They've seen Jesus heal someone who had some kind of seizure disorders. They've seen Jesus uh, relieve people who were struggling with spiritual and mental um, illnesses. And they've watched Jesus tell people about the goodness and the compassion of God. But then in verse 17, it says this, the 72 returned with joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So the 72 presumably went, and they did what Jesus told them to do. They healed the sick. They proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near. And the first thing they do when they return in this incredulous moment is they say, we even have power over evil when we're going in your name or representing you. So like we don't have the details of all that the 72 encountered, but it's, it's if they're saying, whatever it is that we just experienced we can't explain it rationally. Like we, in and of ourselves, don't have the power to heal people. And in and of ourselves, we don't have the power, uh, we don't have power over evil. So what happened came from something beyond us. And there's this sense of shock, like of, of disbelief. Like even the demons 
submitted to us. What is this? So we could talk a lot about this scripture. I was often taught that it was an invitation to do what the 72 did, heal the sick, preach that the kingdom of God is near, and truthfully, to some extent, that is what I've given my life to. But if we just take the passage at face value, what we have are 72 people who have just experienced something that they can't explain that is wonderful, that's exciting, that's beyond their human abilities. And they're on this kind of spiritual high, like this state of disbelief. And Jesus understands the specialness of what they're experiencing. And he says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is always the longing of our hearts to experience God's goodness in ways that fill us with joy, with awe. Those moments where we're saying, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe that just happened. Wait, did you, did you see that? I think what Jesus was referring to and the experience of the 72 could be called spiritual awakenedness. Like somehow our eyes are opened to see God in our natural world and to see beyond our natural world. I spent time with a dear friend uh, this week, and when I asked her, how are you doing? She said, I feel more open. That was her language. I feel more open than I felt in a long time. And she described feeling or described the crazy challenges she's scaring, experiencing in her job and education system. She described her frustration with politics, but she said there's something beyond all of this. There's something mystical. There's something that's eternal that I am feeling deeply connected to. And I could see it in her eyes and in her face that she was in this world experiencing what she was, but connected to something beyond. So a few things to consider um, that I think that this passage invites us to think about. One is when the disciples return, they tell Jesus everything that happens. It's as if they're rehearsing the stories, the things they experienced, these people who got healed. We prayed for them, Jesus, and they were healed. Like there, there was evil, and in and, and, and your name, we, we could say these words, and we had authority over evil. And they're telling their stories, and they're remembering it, and they're allowing it to become part of their narrative. There's a biblical theme from early in the Old Testament around remembering. Remember the Lord your God. Remember when God. Remember, as I get older and the world's problems seem more prominent, I understand how lost or ungrounded I become when I lose sight of God. And it's as if the Bible's rabbis understand this, going so far as to create holidays and festivals designed to help us remember God's goodness. So I grew up in a Jewish home, and there were festivals throughout the year to keep 
God in front of us always. Every Purim, we would reenact the story of Esther and Vashti and wicked Haman and God's saving a generation of Jewish people. And every Passover, we would scour our house to get rid of everything with chametz, with leaven. So if you grew up in a Jewish family that um, observed Passover, not only did you get rid of all your bread, but you got rid of everything that didn't say kosher for Passover on it. We had a different set of dishes that came out from the pantry. I took my kosher bologna, I don't know, that's what I ate in those days, sandwiches on matzah. Do you guys know what matzah is? Right, unleavened bread every Passover um, is what I ate in school, um, to remember how the Hebrew nation, as they were escaping their Egyptian oppressors, had to take only flatbread for their journey because they didn't have time to let their bread rise um, in this deliverance of God. And every night during Hanukkah, we would light one more candle to remember the miracle of God keeping that's a teeny bit of oil enough for one night, um, still going for eight days in order to reclaim and rededicate the temple. So whatever your traditions are, we're invited to remember the moments where extraordinary things happen in our life, something that is beyond us, something that has meant so much to us. When I opened with those two stories, I was remembering, I was remembering this like amazing moment when my dad, my atheist Jewish dad, is looking at what looks like the ceiling to me, but clearly not the ceiling to him, and saying, the angels are coming. The angels are coming, and I'm remembering the moment with my grandmother who hasn't spoken a word to me in so long and who I love so much and have all those memories of being a little girl in her house and her apple tree, and, and now I'm slowly losing her and I'm worrying about her um, relationship with God as a young woman. And she looks me in the eye and says, don't worry, honey. I know God. So before we finish... I have another point, but before we finish, we're going to do that together. We're just going to take a moment to remember. So before you do anything, just think of a moment in your life that you either identify as a God moment or as a literally awesome moment, a moment that like you would have gone, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Did that really happen? Did we just all experience that? Whatever it is. So take like 10 seconds just to decide what that moment is. And then just take about 30 seconds and let that moment burn in your brain a little bit. Think about any details that you can call to mind and just remember the moment.
Amen. The scripture also invites us to find spaces where we find peace or welcome. When you enter a house, the scripture says, first say peace, say shalom to this house. And if someone promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Jesus invites us to discern if the spaces we're in are welcoming, if they invite peace. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus meant, but there's an invitation for us to be mindful of the spaces we choose and the spaces we create. Sometimes we don't have a lot of uh, control over the spaces we find ourselves in, but to the extent we do, we are looking for spaces for our us, for who we are and the blessing that we bring, that that has a place to land. There was a tumultuous season in my life where I chose to go to Prairie Woods, so it's a Franciscan spirituality center in Cedar Rapids, and I went because when I got out of my car, I felt peace. When I walked around their grounds, I felt peace. When I prayed inside, I felt peace for whatever reason in that season and in that space I was able to encounter God. And I think about it on the flip side. How do we receive the people who come to us? Does their peace land with me? Can we receive their blessing? Like I have friends in this church, I'm thinking of a particular couple who I'm friends with, who do this better than anyone I know. Like there is a line in the song that we sang last week, when I look in the face of my enemy, I see my brother. Now I often feel a little disingenuous when I sing this song, because truth be told, I am often ready to kill any number of people. Now, I don't like that about myself. I am not proud of that reality, and I work on that with Jesus. But these friends aren't like that. They literally perceive no one is their enemy. They were sitting by me last week, and I looked at them, and I said, I think this is you. And the I said, I, he said, I think this is me too. I think this is us. Um, they don't perceive people as their enemy. They're curious, they're open-hearted to friends and family members who have vastly different values and politics. And I watch them as they receive God's blessing in ways from people that stun me. They recognize the inherent goodness um, in all creation. And finally, the passage invites us just to slow down and connect. So we often take time on Sunday morning to do what we did um, just a few minutes ago to have some kind of reflective moment. And we do this because it allows us moments to stop, right? To just for a minute to breathe slower, to breathe deeper, just to become aware of us, of our humanity, of our space in the world, of where we are, of what's happening. I was at a mosque once um, dropping something off that we were bringing for them, um, and it was over 
um, an evening prayer time. They were just convening their evening prayer, and I watched these people. They're doing this embodied prayer, and they're getting into position, fully using their bodies and saying these familiar words. And truthfully, as I'm watching it, I feel my heartbeat slowing down, and I'm feeling peace wash over me and a little bit voyeuristic because I quickly realized I wasn't supposed to be in that room. The thing is, if we don't build in those moments of slowing down, the likelihood of our seeing God diminishes, not because God isn't present, but because we haven't created the space to be present to God's presence. There is a sweet line in the song, song in the book Song of Solomon. This is a book in the Old Testament. Some people think it's just a fun love story. I kind of like that. Between two people and others postulate that it is a um, story of the love affair between God and God's people. And I have to say throughout my um, Christian life, I've been in places, especially in seminary, people like to ask, what is your life verse? I never have a life verse. Everybody has these really cool life verses, and I always have life verse envy. I'm like, wow, that was cool. I kind of like that. And I'm like, uh, I like, I don't know, like, there's a lot of cool ones. If I had to choose one verse that would be my verse for life, I think it would be it. And this is what it says. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. I'll get up now, and I'll go about the city through its streets and its squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. The idea is that there are these moments that we are just surprised. We're just surprised by God. We have no idea how it happened. We can't quite explain it. My dad's seeing angels. Like, who, how did that possibly happen? But there are also moments where we get out of our metaphoric beds and we start chasing after what we're looking for. My oldest son chased all the way to France to something called Tizé, which is a Christian ecumenical monastic community. So Luke went with a church group that was being led by our own uh, Bobby Murphy when Bobby was pastoring a church in upstate New York. And Luke, my son, invested a lot of time and money and his wife willing to let him go and they have two children at home. And he found God in a handful of monks living simply in the French countryside who every year lead thousands of people in beautiful chants and contemplative moments. We try to have regular contemplative offerings at Sanctuary at a recent gathering. We did an imaginative prayer that made space for Jesus to meet us in our memories. Afterwards, we asked, does anybody want to share anything? And a few people shared. A 30-something man tried to get out some words in between a lot of tears. Um, and then afterwards, he fleshed out his story a little bit more. He said, well, um, I was born in Rwanda. And both my parents were missionaries. And both of my parents and both most of my adult community um, died in the 
massacre. And he said, I've never really had much healing around this in my life. I have a good life, but it's just sort of my story. But he said, when we invited them to think of a memory and where God was, he said, I could suddenly see my parents and my community and all that was happening. And for the first time in my life, I saw Jesus there. And I knew my parents were okay. And I saw Jesus with me, and I felt his goodness to me. And it was the first peace I've had in all these years around what happened. The point is this. I think that we all long for these reassurances from God, especially in this crazy world. Right now, from where I stand, things are not super hopeful. These moments where we glimpse the divine, where we see something of eternity, lift us out of our temporal awareness. And for just a moment, we connect with something beyond ourselves, something eternal. So I'll close with this. A dear friend of mine has been going through a rough patch trying to um, get some healing from some seriously serious damage that happened um, as being part of a church. Um, uh, yeah, as part of a church. So she's been attending here for a while, and she does fine, but she's pretty reserved, and she says her experience is kind of like this. I'm sitting, I'm watching, I'm nodding, I'm doing my best to worship, and I'm kind of waiting for that moment where something is said that's going to be harmful for me. She says, I try to relax, but it's been hard for me to get past those moments. And she described a dream that she had recently that she found deep, uh, deeply comforting. She said, the dream I had, I was sitting in a church. It was like sanctuary, and it was conference-style room. Other people were present, and a dear friend was all of a sudden sitting next to me, and her hand was on my back. And it was the strangest, loving, safest feeling, kind of like, I got you thing except it wasn't my friend. And it felt spiritual, like that feeling you have in a dream that goes through your whole being. Amen. Why don't we stand and get ready for communion? Jesus wrote in 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. That's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
If you wish to be fed by Jesus, you're welcome to participate. There are stations in the front and back, individually wrapped um, in the front, and suggested prayers on the table if it helps. <laughs> 